Well, good morning. Uh, today's Bible reading comes from Matthew, and it's chapter 21, verses 1 to 22. And you can either follow it on the screen or in the black Bibles on your, on your chairs. It should be in page 1535. So it's Matthew 21, 1 to 22. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey there with a colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciple went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on, on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of them and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Did you hear what these children are saying, they asked him? Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read? From the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. And he left them and went out to the city, to Bethany, where he spent the night. Early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back into the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, May you never bear fruit again. Immediately the tree withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt... Not only can you do what was done to this fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. I had the privilege of starting us off on a new series. So if you've been with us here, we've just finished four weeks in Colossians, and now we're starting Matthew. Um, if you're new and you've just arrived, you've come at a great time. We're going to be looking at the Gospel of Matthew uh, from now up to and including Easter. We'll be asking questions like, who does Jesus claim to be? 
Uh, what do his contemporaries think about him? And what, if anything, does this have to do with us? Uh, it's good to know a little bit about the Gospels. Um, the Gospels are a, an account of Jesus' life. They're, they're constructed for a purpose and an intention. They're different to, say, the letter of Colossians, which was a, a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a particular church to, to really address a set of issues and to encourage them. The Gospels are more uh, an account of Jesus' life using eyewitnesses for the purpose of showing us who Jesus is. Um, yeah, that he's the good news, the one in whom we find life. So we'll be picking up the story of Matthew in chapter 21. It's, all, you know, it's closer to the end of the Gospel of Matthew, and we really want to get, get some context before we jump into chapter 21. So have your Bibles there. Flick open to the start of the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. It's on page 1500. Uh, the first thing you'll note when you look at Look at that page, there's this long list of names that so regularly get skipped over at Christmas, perhaps for good reason. Um, that long list of names there is a genealogy of uh, Jesus. It's there to squarely secure Jesus in the Jewish line. It connects him to famous Jewish heroes like Abraham and King David, the high point of the Jewish kingdom under King David. Uh, Matthew, it's worth noting, is writing uh, perhaps more than any of the other Gospels for a Jewish audience. He's writing to a Jewish audience and he keeps connecting Jesus back to those Jewish prophecies of the Old Testament. And we keep seeing that throughout the Gospel of Matthew. It's also worth noting that Matthew is, is pretty critical of the Jews. We see that in chapter 21. Uh, and Matthew actually was a Jew. So he's, he's really constructing the gospel to present an image of Jesus as the promised Messiah that was rejected by the Jews to their detriment. Okay, so after the genealogy, it's still in chapter 1, we get the story of Jesus' birth. Um, we're familiar with it. The story of Jesus' birth was heralded by angels, was marked in the sky by miraculous stars. Jesus' birth was recognized by the wise men and others, as the birth of a king, a promised king. Have a look in um, verse 21 of chapter 1. We have an, uh, an angel appearing to Joseph, uh, Mary's husband, to comfort him about his fiancée who's fallen pregnant. And this is part of what the angel says. Uh, she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And then we get one of these editorial notes of the, of the writer Matthew. He inserts a bit here to connect Jesus to the prophecy. In verse 22, all this took place to, to fuel, fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And you will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Clearly, the birth of Jesus was no ordinary birth of a baby. The Gospel writer Matthew squarely connects Jesus with Jewish prophecy of old. Here is the one who was promised, the, the promised Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us. And he will save his people from their sins. If you're wondering what the Gospel of Matthew is all about, well, here are two clear things. One, uh, the writer Matthew wants us to see Jesus came to save his people from their sins. And two, that he is God with us, Emmanuel, clearly and squarely up in chapter 1. 
Okay, and so as we're continuing to get context, we flick forward through the Gospel of Matthew, and you'll notice that Jesus performs amazing miracles. He, he heals people, and He teaches with incredible authority. Flick forward to chapter 16. I oh, know we're skipping lots. Uh, chapter 16, we get a really crucial moment in the Gospel. Uh, it's on page 1527. In chapter 16, verse 15... Jesus asks his disciples a question. He says, who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answers correctly. You'll see in verse 15, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Then just over the page in verse 21, Jesus' ministry takes a sharp turn towards Jerusalem. Almost in response to Simon Peter's confession, Verse 21, Jesus says, or the writer says, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and they must be cured, and on the third day rise to life. A crucial turning point in the Gospel of Matthew. From this point on, Jesus is focused on where he's going. He knows that he will be killed. Here is God with us, going to his death, knowingly, willingly. And that gets us to chapter 21. I know we've skipped a lot of good stuff. Uh, do, if, you have, if you're in personal reading, go back and read through from chapter 1 to, tw- to 21, where we're up to today, and get a bit more context. But there's a few key points to get our heads into Matthew. So, in chapter 21, three things happen. Uh, Matthew, uh, he claims that Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, uh, he gets rowdy in the temple, and he curses the fig tree. Three provocative signs of Jesus. I want you to see um, Jesus coming to Jerusalem is the coming of the king to Jerusalem. And he comes overtly, he comes provocatively, and he comes to judge. Uh, I think this chapter particularly, we see Jesus judging hollow religion, that is, religion that's skin deep and doesn't truly worship God. I went to a a good school growing up in in Wyala. It was a religious school, and part of being in that religious school was that we needed to go to termly services. Um, And generally, you know, that was fine. We we knew what we were on about. I wasn't the only Christian kid. I was fortunate to have a few Christian friends, kids from other churches that I went to who were in the same grade. And uh, one thing we were encouraged to do at the school was to get involved. And we were invited to sing and lead some music in, in, the, in the school services. Um, so we did that, and we, we even introduced some very modern songs at that time, songs you might know like Shout to the Lord, uh, Lord I Lift Your Name on High, the old classics. Um, and, and they were pretty well received. It was, it was encouraged. Uh, so would would kind of the Christian kids would come out the front, set up the keyboard and the uh, guitar and have a go at uh, singing and leading some of these songs. And um, but one particular service I remember, we were asked to just stay behind after the service and continue singing some songs, so that anyone of the students who wanted to stay in the presence of the Lord could just remain in the service for a bit longer as an optional thing. So that's what we did. The service finished. People were invited. The rest of the school, of course, went, except for a few. Um, and there we were, Christian kids mostly, sitting uh, in this chapel, uh, singing and, you know, shouting to the Lord as the song went and praying and that kind of thing. Um, and the priest had taken out 
um, the monstrance and put it on the altar while we're singing. If you don't know what a monstrance is, there's a picture here. Uh, it is a gold artifact um, of, of, of this particular church that they had. And it, in the middle, that white disc is, a, is like a communion wafer. Um, they believed that it was actually transubstantiated. It was the physical body and presence of Jesus. So there it was on the altar. We're singing in the presence of Jesus. You know, the Christian kids didn't necessarily agree with all of this. So it was part of their religious teaching as a school. But we're singing away, having a, a good old time anyway. Uh, and then after a little while, the priest came back in, crossed himself, uh, took the monstrance, carried it to the side of the church and, and locked it away in a little box called a tabernacle. There's a picture of the tabernacle. Um, and we used to call it the birdcage, tongue-in-cheek, uh, but the, the monstrance would go in the tabernacle, it was literally locked with a key, and the one they had had a little red curtain that would pull across the front, and the priest left. It was the weirdest feeling. We stopped singing, uh, and one of the kids, one of the students turned and said, they took Jesus away. <laughs> you can imagine, uh, imagine if, if you could put Jesus in a box. Uh, would it matter how he lived? Would it matter what happened once he left the church, once Jesus was safely away? Now, I don't want to unfairly characterize the theology of the school that I was in, but um, that was the message we got. You bring Jesus out for the sacred moments of worship, uh, for, for when you're doing forgiveness and doing business with God, and then you put him safely away for the nitty-gritty day-to-day. Uh, I'm sure that's not what they would have taught, but that was the message that came through. I reckon this kind of religion, religion that sanitizes, secures, and secludes Jesus, is dangerous. Uh, I reckon it's this kind of religion that makes Jesus burst out in judgment. And I think that is what we're seeing in chapter 21 of Matthew. So Matthew records these three provocative signs. Uh, the entry to Jerusalem, the cleansing or the clearing out of the temple, and the cursing of a fig tree. If it helps to follow in your notes, there's a, an outline in your leaflet. The first one is, the king enters his capital. Uh, it's a story we perhaps we know well. Uh, almost every year we look at these stories leading up to Easter, don't we? Uh, remember, though, that Jesus has been heading towards Jerusalem since chapter 16, uh, three different occasions is predicted his death and resurrection. Uh, now he's arrived. The climax is nearly, nearly here. How does Jesus choose to enter Jerusalem, the city where he knows he's going to be killed? Well, he doesn't do it at night. He doesn't do it covertly. He doesn't do it like with all the zealots on war horses ready to go into battle. He comes into the city, his city, on the back of a beast of burden. He comes in humbly, yet he comes in clearly as the king and the Messiah. What's going on? We kind of know the story so well that we fail to see the absurdity of it. What is going on? Why a donkey? Well, I'm writer Matthew helpfully adds one of his editorial notes at this point and, and points us again to a prophecy. Have a look in chapter 21 of Matthew, so back where we're meant to be, uh, in verses 4 and 5. Uh, I'll read it for you. It says, This took place to fulfill, this is referring to the entry on a donkey, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on the colt, the foal of a donkey. 
The writer Matthew wants us to see clearly Jesus' intentions. He was consciously enacting the prophecy of the king. The king coming into his city and coming victoriously. And this is certainly how the Galileans that were with Jesus interpreted his actions. Uh, I can imagine Jesus coming on the pilgrimage to the capital, coming with fellow Galileans, you know, quite a journey, and he gets to this final mountain, and as he's coming down, he enacts this prophecy. Uh, and look at verse 8 of Matthew 21. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. They, ro- they rolled out the royal red carpet for Jesus. Uh, they celebrated the, the last final descent from the mountain of the pilgrimage. They celebrated Jesus coming. And again, they started shouting. They started shouting uh, words that identified who Jesus was. Have a look in verse 9. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heavens. Our last song used the word Hosanna, didn't it? Praise God, the God who saves. Again, Jesus is marked out as more than a mere prophet. He's marked out as the king. The king coming victoriously into his capital. Hosanna to the son of David. They recognized that Jesus was the king and the king in King David's line. The promised one. They were hopeful that Jesus was the king who's come to bring victory and freedom. Now, no doubt, many of them would have thought that or hoped that this is maybe a political freedom. Maybe Jesus has come to rid us of the Romans. Uh, no doubt, they, got a, they weren't expecting the victory that Jesus actually was about to bring, a victory of, uh, of really through humiliation and suffering, the humble donkey ride should have given them a clue. Um, it wasn't a war horse. Jesus came humbly and on the back of a beast, a humble beast. Yet, Jesus accepted their worship. He was the Messiah indeed. Um, not a political Messiah, but the promised Messiah, whose route led to suffering, humiliation and victory through death. How do you think the leaders in Jerusalem, seeing this enacted, would have felt? How would they have responded Well, we're told in verse 10 that the city was stirred, there was an uproar, and they were shouting, who is this? Well, the people with Jesus, probably those Galileans, responded. Um, What do they say? They say, the crowd answered, uh, this is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus didn't sneak quietly into Jerusalem. Uh, He came in overtly. He came in provocatively. He came as the Messiah, the promised king who would save. And he created an uproar. Uh, you, can, uh, you can bet the leaders in Jerusalem would have taken notice. Uh, the city knew what, something unusual was happening. The king has come to his city. He came humbly, yet he came to bring victory to those who would recognize him. The king has come. Will you worship? The king has come to us. Uh, We are fortunate. We have the full revelation of Scripture and the Holy Spirit pointing towards the true identity of Jesus, the true King who saves. Will you worship? Will we worship? Will will you lay down your cloak and shout, Hosanna to the Son of David? So that's the first scene, Jesus entering the temple. 
The second scene um, is him cleansing or clearing out the temple. He just seems to get a bit rowdy, doesn't he? Uh, let's, let's set the scene a little bit as this happens. In Matthew, it reads like Jesus has come down the mountain on a donkey and he goes directly to the temple. Um, the temple was the center of Judaism. Every pilgrim from the Jewish world had to travel there um, annually, I think, to offer sacrifice. It was where their, their worship was centered. It was where they offered sacrifice. And surrounding the temple in the middle was a very large area, a very large walled courtyard, and it was called the Court of Gentiles. Um, it was a busy place. There, this is where the Gentiles, these are non-Jewish people, were allowed to come in to draw near to God. In the, in the temple, what they should have been doing is seeing something of God's character and how he relates to his people. But what actually was happening, the temple courts had become corrupt. They had become a, a place of business. See, they had set up a special temple currency. So if you wanted to buy animals for sacrifice or whatever else they had on the go in the temple court, you had to exchange money. And you can bet those money changes made a tidy little profit on the side. It was corrupt. Um, I don't really know what the court would have been like. I, I wasn't there. But from the reading, I, I can imagine it was a, a busy, bustling place. I don't know if you've ever been to Bali or Thailand or one of those places and been to an open-air market. There's noise, there's smells, there's people shouting out things and little children running around trying to sell you pocket knives and things. It, they're busy places. I reckon the temple court would have been a bit like that. They were selling animals. There would have been dung. There would have been smell. Um, apparently, the dove market was quite a racket. You can imagine these guys yelling, Get your doves! Two for the price of one! And over here is another dove seller going, Perfect dove! guaranteed to be acceptable to the God of the universe. I can imagine there would have been a bit of a ruckus, a bit of noise, a bit of smell, a bit of activity, and certainly it failed to be the house of prayer that it was intended to be. The outer court was meant to be where Gentiles would come to draw near to God. Instead, all they encountered was corruption and people trying to make a buck. Into this scene strode Jesus. Have a look again in chapter 21 of Matthew, in verse 12 and 13. This is how it says, Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you, have, you are making it a den of robbers. Meek and mild? not at this point. This was no random outburst of rage. Uh, this was a premeditated, deliberate, provocative sign. The king has come to his temple. He's come with authority and he's come in judgment. He's come to refine the practices there. An observant Jew may have clicked in their minds and thought, oh, I think Jesus is doing something here that was prophesied in Malachi. There's a reference in your notes to Malachi 3, 1 to 4. Uh, don't need to flick there and uh, if you don't want to, I'll read it for you. Uh, this is in an Old Testament prophecy. It says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. And in verse 2, you, but, but who can endure the day of his coming? It's not an easy day. Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire 
or a launderer's soap, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he does this because it says, then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness, not corruption. So King Jesus has come to his temple. He's come in judgment. He's come as a refiner. He's come to prepare people for the great day of the Lord to have people who will make offerings in righteousness. The temple had been corrupted. The worship had been turned. Now, I'm sure that those tables that Jesus flipped uh, would have been righted. I'm sure that the corrupt markets were back and running in full swing the very next day. But the point had been made, and you can bet the temple authorities had taken notice. The same day in our reading, Jesus performs healings in the temple. And he accepts the praise, the worship of little children who shout, Hosanna to the son of David. What a busy day in the temple. What an unusual, shocking day in the temple. And the day ends as the sun sets with a confrontation. Um, The religious heavyweights, the temple leaders, the Jewish teachers found Jesus at the center of the ruckus and have a look at what happens in verse 15 but when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things that jesus had done and the children singing or shouting out praise hosanna to the son of david they were indignant an interesting response to wonderful things they were indignant do you hear what these children are saying they asked jesus yes jesus replied have you never read and he quotes a psalm from the lips of children and infants you lord have called forth praise. The religious leaders failed to recognize Jesus for who he was. And then they hear the worship of the children and they chide Jesus. Do you hear their outlandish praise? This has got to stop. Stop them. Don't let them blaspheme. And Jesus doesn't really make things any easier for himself in, for himself in the way he answers He quotes Psalm 8. Uh, It's a psalm of praise for the Lord. And just the first two verses of that psalm provide us, I think, with the insight into just how provocative Jesus was with these leaders. Let me read for you just the first two verses in Psalm 8. Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens through the praise of children and infants you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger how provocative so jesus is effectively saying to those temple leaders yes i am god and i will receive praise from these little ones because you offer me none it's a, jesus is clearly claiming to be divine And then he leaves. Day over. Jesus is not gentle in his judgment of hollow religion. Religion that is shiny and proper on the outside, it performs the right rituals, it fails to recognize Jesus as king. It's easy for us to sit back and point the finger at first century Judaism. Clearly they got it wrong. In fact, it's easy for us to point point the finger at other branches of the Christian church or perhaps even some parts of the Anglican church and and point the finger at them and say you've replaced religion you've replaced relationship with the king with ritual and relics 
but how are we going? It's worth examining our own hearts. I, I know many of you here are trusting in Jesus and truly seeking to honour him with your lives. But it's still worth the question, how are we going? How would Jesus judge our church? Is our worship more than just external appearance? Is our worship a sacrifice, not just of singing, which is so important, but is our worship a sacrifice of righteousness? Does the worship of our lives attract outsiders or does it repel them? Gentiles in the temple were meant to encounter Jesus, but just encountered corruption. Will you worship? And will your worship be more than just hollow assent to religion? Well, we've seen uh, Jesus enter Jerusalem overtly as the king. Uh, He's come down the mountain to the temple courts where he has judged corrupt religion that fails to recognize him. Um, And then we get to our third episode, the cursing of the fig tree. Now, I think it's probably the hardest one. It's not as public, but I think it's meant to be read with the other two. The third provocative action of Jesus. Now, I don't want to just dwell on this too much except to make a couple of of observations i think the cursing of the fig tree is an enacted parable uh, and and that reinforces what we've seen the entry to the temple and the clearing of the temple and an enacted parable is just that it's a, a, a sign or in this case a miracle that is intended to communicate a point the fig tree uh is often a symbol of israel And Jesus walked past the tree, saw that it had plenty of leaves, but he could find none of the the small summer fruit that he could have expected to see on there with the leaves at this time of year. So, it seems like he just gets frustrated and curses the tree and it shrivels on the spot. Now, I don't know if any... Has anyone grown figs successfully? No. See, my hands. I've tried growing figs successfully. We had a fig tree uh, for a while and... And you would start to get these little fruits on, and you'd think, oh, yes, we're going to get some figs. And uh, you'd wait and wait and wait and wait, and they never seemed to ripen. Then you come out the next day, and they're on the floor, and they're rotten with ants. So uh, I'm not really sure. If Jesus is just frustrated for the lack of fruit, it seems a little unreasonable. But I think there is more going on here than just um, angry because I was hungry. Um, what's going on? Well, Matthew has included the story at this particular point for a reason. I think it connects to what we've been talking about and it connects to the judgment parables that come in the latter half of chapter 22 and 23. I think the meaning is clear. Israel is all leaves with no fruit. They have the trappings of religion with no, right, with no righteous behavior, no, no good fruit. They don't know God nor do they recognize the Son. Jesus finds little true worship in Israel. And this brings him intense sorrow and frustration, and it will be judged. I wonder if Jesus had Micah 7 in his head when he cursed the fig tree. I think it helps us a little bit. Um, In Micah 7, at the start of that chapter, it's again another Old Testament prophecy that I think connects here. I'll just read it to you. You're welcome to flick there, but I'm going to read it to you now. Uh, This is what the prophet says. What misery is mine? I am like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There is no cluster of grapes to eat, none of the early figs that I crave. 
the faithful have been swept from the land. Not one upright person remains. Everyone lies in wait to shed blood. They hurt each other with nets. Here, the parable goes on. Uh, Sorry, the Micah prophet continues. Here, fruitlessness, the failure to find fruit, is equated with unfaithfulness, unrighteousness. How does God feel about fruitless, hollow religion? I think Matthew 21 makes it pretty clear. The tree withers. Again, what about us? Let's bring it forward. Does our worship of God bear fruit? Fruit like prayerfulness. Um, Fruit like evangelism. Telling others of the the good news that we've come to believe. What about fruit like love? Fruit of serving our community, serving one another. Does our worship acknowledge Jesus as Lord and King? The only one who can bring forgiveness. I know, I know that it, sometimes we fail and actually we have good, a good understanding and we have forgiveness. We, we did communion today, reminding us of our dependence on Jesus. But is that, isn't that part of the righteous fruit? Living a life of dependence, walking in forgiveness with Jesus, acknowledging Him as King. Well, the King has come. He's come to us. Will you worship? Uh, true worship responds to Jesus as King, Messiah and Lord. True worship involves more than just Sunday civility. Uh, True worship is full of dependence on Jesus as our personal King and the only means by which we achieve forgiveness. This week, worship Jesus in the way that you live. When you wake up, who's the first person you talk to? Will you worship Jesus in that moment? When you pick up the kids from school, there's that post-school frustration Will you worship Jesus? And the way you organize your week. And when you arrive at work, when you respond to that email you've been thinking about, will you worship Jesus? Well, here are our three questions from the outline. Will you worship Jesus as King? Will your worship be more than just hollow ascent to religion, just the trappings? And will your worship bear fruit? I'm going to pray. I think we need God to help us as we live our lives in response to the King, full of worship and obedience. Let's pray. Father, we know that we are 100% dependent on Jesus, the true King, God with us, who's come to save. Help us as we live out our lives in response to Jesus as King, to live lives of worship not hollow uh, ascent to religion, but deep dependence on Christ for all things, for our righteousness, for forgiveness, and for life. In Jesus' name, amen.